0: My name is uh, Milena Kalinowska and I'm the director of public programs here at the regional Museum. What we will be doing this evening, we will go to three particular areas with our esteemed curators who have joined us for this evening walkthrough. Nika Yoshitaki uh, uh, was a coordinating curator of this exhibition called According to What and has just returned from a visit to Ai Weiwei's Studio in China. And Kao Ha is the curator of the ongoing perspective exhibition at the subway in which Ai Weiwei works, fragments, is now displayed. Um, They will have a, a dialogue together and talk about different works. And I think there will be also an opportunity for you to ask questions. Let me introduce the two curators. Since joining the International in September 2011, Mika was has coordinated the exhibition Dark Matters in addition to coordinating Fiberway According to Quad. Outside of the museum, she has organized several exhibitions, including at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, the Guggenheim in New York, and the exhibition of for the Sun, the art of Manama and Poe. She has contributed numerous essays to many catalogues for places such as Dia, Sierra Art Museum, MoCA, the Guggenheim, and MoMA, including for the current Museum of Modern art exhibition, Tokyo, 1955 to 1970, and New Avant-Garde. In 2007, Carla House appointed the first curator of contemporary art of the Theatre and Safra. Through exhibitions and public programs, she furthers the gallery's effort to present works that explore current social change and artistic production related to Asia, particularly photography and time based media. Her recent projects include, through the perspective series, the current. I Way Exhibition and the upcoming Rina Benjer, as well as Moving Perspectives, an 18 months long series of exhibitions focusing on video art from Asia with works by Shazia Chikander, Rida Abdul, Ding Kiuler, and Yang Fudong, among Other exhibitions include Shadow Sides, recent Works by Janan Al-Ami, and Fiona Grace and Fall, for which Carol was the in-house creator. I will now turn to the two creators, Minkan and Carol, to have the conversation together. Thanks, Elena.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Um, Really uh happy to be here today with Carol um collaborating together on um, this Iowa Way exhibition. Um we basically began, this it was last spring, uh, with fragments being exhibited at um, the Free Rescler and Zodiac at, at the Hirschhorn and um, we've Carol and I have kind of been talking for you know quite some time about this um, how to you know together kind of a, a program um, that really considers the two institutions, um, especially considering that uh, Wei is a contemporary artist, uh, but a non-Western artist, um, and these, there are issues in terms of how Wei has been uh, received and how this affects our own kind of music. Uh, questions in terms of contextualizing, especially with in, in between a museum that specializes in Asian art versus uh, museums that specialize in uh, modern contemporary. So there are um, continuing kind of challenges that we'd like to, you know, bridge. Um, and what, what we want to bring uh, start with is to kind of begin. Um, discussing and opening up interpretive interpretive frameworks um, and references in relation to global art history, language, um, and also culturally specific issues, such as uh, nation and as a cultural imaginary. Um, And as you see here, um, in terms of the structure of uh, today, we wanted to just stop at three sections of the exhibit. So, here we have the works that um, largely uh, comprise of uh, fragments of, of salvaged wood. Um, and so, we'll talk about the issue of fragments and um, kind of reuse and uh, reconfiguration, also, um, issues about particular versus universal. And then, um, we wanted to then stop at the next gallery, which um, is has the document of the Han Dynasty urn, and um, discuss a little bit about the ideas surrounding destruction, renewal, um, uh, faith versus uh, uh, originality versus copy, um, these kinds of issues. And then at the, at the final stop, we wanted to um, stop at the steel rebar section, which is the last gallery and um, so that will kind of be a rough um, orientation for tonight and we urge you to ask questions um, as we're in dialogue um, because we want this to be as open as possible.
2: So, um, Carol? (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, This is a much larger group than I expected. Um, But as as Mika said, um, in thinking about this collaboration and actually this is the Third instance in which we have shown concurrently the work of an Asian artist uh, in both museums, Um, and in those two previous iterations, both exhibitions were wonderful, but we never brought that conversation public um, to really ask these questions as we are asking here. So what does it mean to contextualize an artist in an Asian art museum, or um, what are the different kinds of interpretations that that each of us and what we represent? Great to bear so um, I think starting the wood section is actually a, a, a wonderful way to start that discussion start this discussion with you about it um, Wood and the way he treats wood um, is both um, has has um, important references with respect to installation form sculpture minimalism and also um, the kinds of wood that he chooses to use, um, both in terms of type of wood as well as the way he works them, um, has specific Chinese cultural references. So, as, as Ai Weiwei has said, uh, um, uh, there's a quote in one of his many interviews where he says, you know, he had spent his time in New York and then came back to China in the late uh, 80s when there was a great change going on. He marries his two experiences or understandings. So this is what we'll try to tease out by looking at the actual works. Well, I wanted to
1: just also, uh, you know, begin. This experience in New York is very important. Um, and they gave the title of this exhibition, which is according to what? And this is the direct appropriation of Jasper Johns, who's a, uh, an American pop artist, you know, a art neo artist from the 80s. image here of the painting from 1964, which, which this uh, exhibition title is drawn from. And um, out of the way, his first, this is uh, Jasper Thompson's 1964 painting. is a 16 foot uh, panel, multi uh, media piece that has um, a monthly of uh, motifs, um, including a cast leg and a chair and as well as, um, it's a hang- basically a hanger that's, that's twisted here, a hanger which is also a motif um, that uh, I like uses um, to create profile of like Duchamp, um, who is a Dada artist, very much an influ- influential figure in, um, in, in his work as well as in John's uh, work here. And one of the, well, it, it, as far as, Ivory's first encounter with Johns. Um, Johns was one of the first artists, uh, books that he encountered um, before his trip to New York. Um, he moved to New York in 1983, and um, at first, Ivory had no idea why this artist was, you know, was considered an artist. Um, and he actually threw away the book. But um, later on, when he moved to New York, he realized. Um, you know, up until that point, I was very um, engaged in his well basically questioning his role as an artist uh, within you know, the China had just gone through the cultural revolution. His father had been uh urged as part of the uh of intellectuals and he was really questioning his notion of purpose as an artist. And so when he saw this work, which was you know, there's a um, a notion of kind of disengagement and detachment in um, the use of these work, these everyday items that were uh, being incorporated into the canvas, and uh, questioning of authorship and seeing that there are these fragments um, that could transform the original or conventional values or systems of uh, meaning and, and kind of overturn them into a new and uh, redefined meaning. And so that kind of trope or technique is something that is very consistent throughout um, Ai Weiwei's artistic practice. And just to give you an example specifically here in this room, in relation to um, the kippah, which is the work that you see here, it it, uh, combines fragments of salvaged wood from two dynasty temples as well as something from Ai Weiwei's childhood, the uh, parallel bars. Um, And this is you know, stemming from a very, very uh, remote, when he was growing up in Xinjiang province, uh, northwest, or northwest region, um, during the, the revolution, when his family was exiled, um, he did not have uh, that many kind of items to play with in the children's playground. So this is uh, something from his, a uh, nostalgic item from his childhood. And then the, um, the stacked wood, um, is is drawn from also from his childhood when um, people would come by and uh, praise his family um, for having such beautifully stacked uh, wood. And what you see here is this combination of two things from um, his childhood memories. Um, but you know, even though it looks so stable and it's a very kind of minimalist um, iconic cubic form, um, there is a the cultural specificity to this work which is that there is, you know, um, within the kind of, uh, just a lot of the destruction of, of traditional values that have been on, going on during the Cultural Revolution, I think that this work is really coming to terms with that process of destruction. And so, you, in terms of interpreting these pieces, you have to have this kind of um, dual understanding of the techniques, which really is drawn from this tradition of Johns and Duchamp, as well as
2: uh, his own cultural um, historical heritage. <laughs> um, the work that's on view at the Sackler, if, if any of you have seen it, also draws from fragments of wood from Qing Dynasty temples. Um, so these two works really are, are actually uh, fascinating in, in as it has resided at the Sackler, um, it elicited uh, avenues of inquiry that were that were on the cultural specific, culturally specific, end. significant. For example, um, the use of the Qing dynasty wood; uh, it came from temples, which makes. And, and since he specifically describes them as fragments from Qing dynasty temples, that leads you to want to understand a bit more of where he sourced this material. What are these Qing dynasty temples? What, what in the transformation of form from that temple to this can we understand? And actually, by following that, by seeing what the original structure was and um, the, the sort of uh, understanding of Chinese architecture that embodies conceptually in that structure. And then what he's done here adds a different kind of um, understanding, if you will, of the way he's drawing on history. And you mentioned, um, interestingly, uh, in his relationship to Jasper Johns, or in the sort of drawing more from that Western um, um, history, the sense of detachment from uh, history, from objects, um, and the fragmentation of them and bringing them together is, is um, actually quite fascinating when you think of um, in this, this sort of way in which he distances himself also from Chinese culture and form in order to reconfigure them. I mean, uh, when you look at something like grapes down there, the stools that are sort of in this form, it's very he's, he's very much detaching himself, if you will, from the history that he is, is somewhat part of um, and then from that detached position able to take all of these fragments and sort of like the act of memory, your memory is always going to be made up of these bits and pieces it's never a whole story that's delivered to you you, you bring all of these fragments from the past, from your own past and you put them together in some way and, and that's that's Kippah or that is fragments or that is a stool um, so to think about history in that way and his, his relationship to um, or his distance relationship to a history that reaches back millennia um, can be fruitful, a fruitful way of thinking through his work as well. Um, the woodworks also uh, bring to mind uh, other issues that are pertinent to contemporary Chinese society that also relate to history. For instance, um, um, we had a conversation once with um, a scholar of Chinese painting and, and literature and poetry actually to ask this question about ruins we were talking before, when you think about it, um, in China, you don't really see uh, ruins of buildings, not in the same way that you see in the West. And that's a sort of perception that um, um, Wuhan uh, takes um, into a deeper, actually quite fascinating study called The Story of Ruins, which was published last year, that looks into why, I mean, he went all the way back to the fifth century BCE to look for representations of. Ruins found maybe five or six examples. But then starts to tease out how how the the concept, the notion of ruins, um, the fact that because so much was built in wood, of course, there would be far fewer ruins, Um, but beyond that fact, um, the notion of ruins and how it sort of exists in the more poetic or emotional uh, lives of Chinese through poetry. But then when you get to the contemporary, a very different association or relationship Ruins, particularly as it's shown in contemporary art. Um, there are also issues of recycling, of, of construction. So it's, it's another way. So there's the, there's the Jasper Johns sort of baseline understanding of Jasper Johns and, and his lineage. And there's all, there are also opportunities to look into specifically Chinese aesthetic traditions. So the, the woodworks are particularly useful for that. Really fascinating. I mean, I, I, when you're engaging
1: with the with the one thing that uh, this exhibit has some some that's so surprising is especially with the works that you see in this gallery. People can't not touch. They just want to touch these works. And it, we've had so many um, complaints from our because of um, how. Uh, Attractive and subjective, the material is, and I think it speaks to the, um, the history and also the materiality of you know the, the works. Um, and, um, well, in terms of, I think the, again, coming from a more um, contemporary uh, context, um, especially with these, with, like, um, for example, the map of China, um, there is a tradition, especially in for example, minimalism and, and also an abstraction, um, when you're dealing with sculptures that are kind of at human height level and um, that are abstract, you, you know, there's this kind of interest in wanting to know, wanting to be interested because of your, the, the simply for the scale, you know, the one-to-one kind of um, relationship with these, with the scale works. And, um, but what it brings to this um, Technique-wise, is that he not only um, presents, you know, this very kind of abstract. You don't really know exactly what this is until you really engage with um, the object, and then, what, as you're looking at it, you start to realize that it does, you know, slowly begin to emerge as um, the the borders and the boundaries of this geographic map, and um, that kind of of approach and um, experience is very um, much you know, in parallel with the traditions of, for example, um, minimalism and, um, and post-minimalism. And so um, it's a kind of a phenomenological understanding of how you come to understand your relationship with the object um, at a more kind of slow um, experience rather than just
2: a symbolic representational um means. For my impulse in approaching the same work is to think about um, the way he uses Chinese resources, both sort of human and material. Um, the carpenters, the carpentry techniques. Because what's what's quite fascinating is that there is um, um, with grapes or with the mount, this the joinery techniques. Um, it's it's a highly refined way of joining wood to create form and. Um, as maybe some of you have heard me in the previously, but um, woodworking, the carpentry that was actually highly valued, where the tools were metaphors for um, justness or rightness, metaphors for being, um, because you know they kept your lines plump, because they you know because they um, helped you achieve a degree of precision. So you have these pieces, fragments this, that are joined together without nails. There there is there needs to be a sort of justice of character to have that kind of precision. And again, to think about the materials and how he's um, uh, interacting with them and acting upon them, um, also provides some useful references to the way the Chinese, where the Chinese carpenters may be coming from. You know, the hands that actually um, were involved in working with him in producing these works. Um, the second thing is, um, sorry, just a quick point, it's actually uh, just anecdotal, is that um, Fragments is also in the form of a map of China. So when I first proposed, when I first described Fragments to the rest of the curators, that this is a map of China, first question, is, is Tibet represented in there? What exactly is represented within those borders of China? You know, it's very specific <laughs> questions. So. Um, Exactly, but there's also a little stool, and, and of course, people come through our museum where we like to put maps of the different historical periods to understand where we are. And of course, I must have been asked at least a dozen times, well, does that stool represent Taiwan or Hainan? Because it's sort of in Hainan today,
0: but yesterday it was
2: more in the position of Taiwan. So, you yeah, know, there are these specific examples, perhaps questions that are elicited more, and this is totally anecdotal, this is not a study, but perhaps that are elicited more on my end than. Yeah, uh, I, that's not a question
1: that comes up <laughs> so much here. I think people just want to know how it's made, and you know, um, once I do point out that, that it is in China, then they get more interested in the The taller people can see the intersections. Um, this is made out of, think, 300 parts of um, teary wood. So, yeah. And then the China lock here is made out of eight fragments uh, from pillars of uh, the, the of Dynasty couple. But um, and you can see the painted the red paint that um, was the, the original um, pillar itself. And I I understand that the number eight is a an auspicious number, it's a significant number. Um they just wondered or something like that. but the void here the, the hole inside the log is also um, in the shape of, of China. And so in a sense, to have these two words here, you have the negative and then the positive represented with um, the of China, and the accumulation of um, de-
2: uh, what Ayobe calls the depth of history. Okay, so Walk, and also the, the use of Tianhe wood, which because it's an iron wood, it's the heaviest and most dense um put use for construction. So when you look at the labels and see that see there are different kinds of woods like on ID or TID, um, there's a you know there's a practical reason for it,
1: but it also makes you think about is considered choice of materials. Alright, let's walk over to the uh, next gallery. So since we're um, here I wanted to, this this part at the first one, and I wanted to, this is, the and, um, to, this is, this is actually, I uh, wanted to talk about Cuban enemy here. Um, and um, it's probably one of the most representative examples of always of, uh, kind of appropriation of the minimalist, iconic form of the minimalist cube. And um, Carol is holding uh, up Tony Smith's Die in 1962. This is um, a work at the National Gallery. Um, and there are some parallels between these two works, not only the form, but um, with Tony Smith, um, this was a piece that really, uh, his, his first steel cube, um, and this is uh, six feet by six feet by six feet. And as I was mentioning before, um, this is a, one of the kind of classical minimalist works that, um, that the artist was thinking, um, in between, in a time when sculpture was being questioned and um, and how our own kind of body's relationship to objects was also being questioned. So here, he really creates kind of a one-to-one relationship of a kind of standard height, about six feet height. Um, and it's it's an object that is in between a monument, but also just a simple, kind of small, intimate object. and. Um, this very fundamental, this, this, the measurements are very much aligned with Ai um, Weiwei's Cuban Ebony here, which is also um, standard measurements, 100 centimeters by 100 centimeters by 100 centimeters. And Ai Weiwei has always had a very profound interest in minimalism and also the kind of um, engagement with fundamental forms and um, of, of, of fundamental units. Um, and the, even the stool that you saw in the other room is a, a very kind of a fundamental unit of uh, structure of a family uh, home. Um, and that Carol had talked about this um, last time in her uh, Friday Gallery talk. But, um, but in addition to that, this, the cube uh, form I uh, will also incorporates um, this very um, elaborate surface pattern which is drawn from uh, a small wooden box that the artist's father had given to him as a gift that we actually have here inside the vitrine, And um, the, the curator, uh, Monica Togba, believes that this wooden box is actually um, drawn from Japan because of the rosewood was actually exported from China to Japan, um, I'm not sure when, but um, quite some time, I think, ago. And, patterns here, it's almost like this um, branch-like pattern and there's some holes inside so that these patterns are actually um, repeated all over the surface of um, this piece and this is made out of um, different uh, panels and so it's not actually a solid cube. Um, But this is just one example in which um, there is a kind of hybridity that's going on here. This cultural specificity of the um, materials that I would bring to a very um, familiar form in the West. And, um, and this is repeated again upstairs in Cube light, the chandelier piece that you see, but it brings a much more kind of social, uh, political aspect in terms of, that um, piece, in terms of the uh, lack of transparency and the opulence um, within communist China. So, uh, so I just wanted to... Uh, to touch
2: on this before we um, talk about some other aspects of um, this. Briefly, in this gallery, uh, there's a piece in a case that's right back there and it's sort of a really reversal of this pretty well. Um, it's much more familiar uh, in terms of its western references with a surface that refers back to the Rosewood words. And that piece is much less familiar in terms of its shape but recognizable when you, when you look at it. And it's, it's an especially curious piece that I spoke about previously, but um, um, one that was added very late, uh, the last piece that was added to the exhibition, so not in the catalog, and very little description of it. So um, I thought, well, this would be an interesting um, opportunity as we're gonna driven through uh, our own resources over at Sattler to try and tease out an understanding of it. Um, so, in short, Ruby really is. is an aus- auspicious wish. So, that form, um, objects in that form called the were often given as auspicious gifts, well wishes on a birthday or an anniversary. And we have a painting in our collection that we have found of a young prince, in which um, of the implements that are around him, all of the symbols that are that surround one in a painted portrait, especially, um, is a little riyi in an instant. So, that was. A, a sort of, uh, it was a wonderful way of being able to tease out the imagery that he's using, and then also understand that you know since he has spent time in Jingdezhen working in the imperial kilns, working with the imperial kilns, um, you know an area that has had over a millennia of producing royal ceramics, and so his choice of glaze references that period of, of his understanding of Chinese craft and tradition um, that relates to Jingdezhen ware or you know, any number of Bluish green uh, glaze, Um, but then then there's the other way that it uses the body literally, um, that incorporates the kidneys and organs that you've seen in the intestines. So um, in a way, uh, as I started this little bit, it's it's sort of a reversal of what's happening here.
1: There is a little bit of that um, bodily or tactile um, associations. So um, this goes strictly against the kind of stripping of uh, subjectivity or expressivity that are kind of the, the norms for. Um, sorry, we're having some sound trouble. If you have questions, um, I, I don't want this to be completely we'll just me and Carol. <laughs> um, you know, we, we do uh, want to open up for questions uh, throughout. Uh, so you, please feel free to ask questions as we're going. Yes. Um,
2: I see. punctuated in these galleries where some of
1: the objects are more almost like conceptual. There's an emphasis on capturing things in a documentary style with the photos and the videos. And I was just wondering if you could perhaps contextualize that juxtaposition from the artist's perspective and what that kind of achieved, or if that's more of a curatorial choice? Uh, that was more of a, well actually I should say that uh, the layout of this show was, was in collaboration with the artist. So it was a curatorial decision but uh, based with the artist. And um, the artist really wanted to include the uh, these photographs, which you know, date from 1983 up until uh, 2004. So his time in New York, and then when he um, returns to Beijing in 1993, um, and all the way up to 2004. And uh, he, there are actually a lot more um, photographs, but um, they really, the photographs um, really provide a much more kind of uh, candid or um, intimate window into his life and. Um, some aspects that, re- that one would really see just by looking at the works, especially since the works aren't so representational in the you know the, um, conventional sense, um, and, and they are, there are a lot of conceptual um, that you need a lot of the kind of cultural and historical background in order to understand the the breadth and also the depth of these of these works. And so um, the photographs really do provide the kind of his own kind of biographical um, narrative, uh, if you will, and also the socio-political um, aspects of, especially his time in, in New York during the 80s, um, when he experienced uh, the AIDS crisis and um, also the Tiananmen Square right, riots and a lot of uh, it was a, just a very um, important period of time, um, a very conservative time, um, and and I think that. Some of the kind of fundamental values of human rights and freedom of speech that uh, continue on in his work today were really um, born during that time. So um, curatorially, those are the kinds of things that we would like. We hope that the viewers would um, take out of the show. The videos are uh, yes, the, because the the architecture of the Hirshhorn. Um, the artists who really wanted to kind of uh, pinpoint the. mean, um, the videos are really kind of objective, almost warholian, you know, um, gridded uh, landscapes or views. They, they can almost be like surveillance kind of objective views onto um, major boulevards of China. So you have um, Beijing Second Ring, which is right there, and then Chang'an Boulevard. Um, and they're basically, for those of you who don't know, they um, they're like one-minute segments um, taken, I think, like um, every hundred meters um, down the avenues, and um, they're, they were shot in 2005, 2006, and so it's really a documentation of that time period and how much Beijing has changed um, before then, but also since then. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, the show really brings different aspects of, so you know, Beijing. Now in the present, um, but also how it's changed in the past, and then also the photographs providing the artist's own kind of you know personal um, life, everyday life, and then this work's being a much more kind of conceptual um, practice. Um, and just two additional sort
2: of footnotes to that. Um, I think uh, on the uh, There's also, perhaps, this element of, um, for Ai Weiwei that's so fundamental to his being is his entire life is is art and vice versa, So the photographs that he takes documenting every day, they, for me at least, they create a sense of context, but they also reinforce the sense with Ai Weiwei that his entire life is an art form, Um, that art, going back to that original point that we were talking about, that art is, if if you're fundamentally redefining what art is, that photographs of his everyday, which he's done every day since New York, through China, thousands of negatives, as Mika said, um, they're a part of his life slash art as well. Um, So that that was just one point. And then the second point about um, the sort of performative photographs in the urns, it's always interesting to ask these questions about curatorial or artist choices about, uh, regarding the juxtaposition of words. I mean, if I think, for example, at um, previous instances where Shubing, for instance, um, had a monographic exhibition about a decade ago, and he drew from the collections and brought out historical works and either augmented them or um, positioned his own words in dialogue to them. So in, in thinking about that space between words and you know the, the very simple choice of, uh, or the obvious choice that he's dropping a Han dynasty urn there, and these are Han dynasty urns painted that he's reinterpreted. But there are different forms of destruction uh, that are speaking to each other. And um, you know, on the one hand, there's uh, an understanding of it in sort history of performative art and, and destruction, which the Hirschhorn will be delving into in far greater knowledge and depth um, uh, within the next couple of years. I think. But this fall, excuse me. Um, But for on the other hand, it's also a way to look at um, what he means to take something that is purportedly an ancient Chinese object and um, destroying them from the point of view of somebody who is valuing these objects as history, Uh, whereas um, when he's come out of a generation where a lot of heritage, if you will, whose heritage is yet another. but the idea of heritage objects being destroyed um, which he witnessed uh, in abundance in the Cultural Revolution as as that generation did. They're all sort of part and parcel also of his questioning of heritage and who decides um, what is of historical value. uh, So in in that sense there's the aspect of destruction but uh, in a culturally specific sense there is a, a modern historical context that one could also draw on to understand these acts, if you will.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the press and, you know, the interesting thing that, uh, our misunderstanding that comes out of this work, the drama on it the is, that um, many the, the j- journalists and even, you know, visitors that come through, um, their immediate gut reaction is, know, oh, this is an icon of lost. you know, oh, this is, you know, he's a dissident. And um, the fact that Ai Wei is so identified in the world as a political dissident, rather than more, you know, just in terms of his entire work and life as an artist, um, I mean, you can't really uh, divide or uh, separate the two, but you can't also just see him only as a, you know, a political dissident and so, when one looks at this this, this triptych, um, yes, the immediate reaction is hes destroying a very you know um, valuable ancient um, object. But when you think about think, the cultural specificity of what he's gone through, this is from 1995, um, and um, formally, you know, this is again um, the, the large-scale format is in. Um, Alignment with his the height with his with his body and it's a very kind of visceral really um, in your face yeah in your face kind like act. act right but at the same time I I I, I always try to remind people that it's um, you know it, it's not necessarily just an act of destruction it is also an act of coming to terms with the destruction that he had experienced, you know, in his childhood. So there is this aspect of, you know, real investment
2: in a kind of transformation or renewal. And I think that's an important sort of general point when approaching, especially with Chinese artists, because, uh, but this is true of all non-Western art, and particularly artists that sort of are um, heavily mediaized. I mean, when when you, a A lot lot of people know about Ai Weiwei, just as you said, as the dissident artist. Um, it's understood in, a, in, in terms of um, politics and often misunderstood, especially in the earlier contemporary Chinese art <coughs> works, you know, with, uh, images of Mao, cynical populism, all of that, where it, it, there was a comfortable way of looking at contemporary Chinese art as political and anti communist or, you know, somehow being cynical about China in a way that would, in terms that were understandable to Americans, to the West, I say, excuse me. But something like this also um, asks you to at least consider that there are that the the, the politics or the the political um, contexts within which artists are working or resisting or responding to are a bit more complex. And so, if if you accept that position or if you at least start there, then this becomes it it can still at the end of the equation remain an iconic plastic act to you. But it could also then become something else in your understanding. That's so perhaps a little bit more complicated than simple um, iconic <laughs> And you know, we have to remember that Iowa is also very
1: humorous, and um, humor is a huge part of his practice. He plays with words, um, and also even with the color bases here. I mean, I think someone um, mentioned these colors as like car, like car paint. But, um, and I guess also just going back to that question about curatorially, um, bringing these two works together, I I don't think that this is an interpretation the artist necessarily um, was thinking about, but when you see the triptych against the colored bases together formally, when you set this kind of um, gravitational pull, and so you have these paints that are, you know, um, really kind of in the process of Dripping, and then you have the um, base kind of, you know, crashing against the ground. And so there's that kind That's of truth. It's, it's the same gesture. Gesture. Just dip them. Yeah. Drop them or dip them. them. <laughs> that you wouldn't actually necessarily think about if
2: these were placed in, you know, different format. So okay. Can um, we move well, on, 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 on to the last pattern? Um, you know, uh, one of the last. Don't worry; we we'll won't go over all of it now. But uh, in that last gallery, you see a lot of um, multiples of things, um, and also the um, uh, in, in terms of the question of the copy: uh, what is original? What is fake? Um, what is an original object? What has he done to it? Um, copy was sort of wood form. Um, all of those sort of questions. Interestingly, that can come up in discussion. quite frankly, in discussions about about um, uh, his way of appropriating and, in fact, his um, sometimes distance involvement with the actual work itself. And um, it, it also, it, it tends to bring up a whole host of interesting questions about authenticity, um, which, again, is another thorny, but interesting uh, question that arises uh, through his words on the one hand, it can be understood, and I'll let Nika describe it more, uh, questions of copy or authenticity that certainly come out uh, of the Doshkoku legacy. And copying and authenticity, though, take a slightly different tone when you think about Chinese art uh, as an example, where copying was a copy of the masters, where perfection came through the copying to looking back towards historical precedent. Um, for, uh, what we would call appropriation today, but, but really drawing on the history of symbols and the way the masters did it in order to make your own statement within a certain uh, defined set of terms, if you will, in, in order to achieve a sort of perfection of that statement. So copying authenticity, again, um, across different cultures, take on uh, 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 um, uh, or incorporate different ways of thinking. So. It's being sensitive to that as well, I think, is is, is helpful in, in thinking through the different contexts in which I is, is drawing.
1: Right, and just to follow up on um, this notion of the copy and going either way it's, it's definitely about questioning value. And that's uh, this notion of questioning uh, how you how one attributes value onto an object or onto the history of an object. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a universal issue, and um, and it also is in relation to the aspect of uh, the author and um, questioning um, the authorship as a basic, you know, stance of, of modernism, and of um, with it goes back to the sixties. Philosophically, um, the basically when were performance artists. And that changed uh, how race, kind of steered his, his career to a different direction and, um, and the beginning of his troubles really because of his really, interest in trying to make transparent um, a situation that the authorities were really trying to cover up and um, in this case we have you know the very shoddy built schools, um, the buildings and um, the were Basically, so not uh, taking any responsibility and trying to move forward from the, uh, from the disaster. And um, so, what I would do is bring these bent stability bars back to the studio and, and have his uh, studio assistants straight through each one. We have a video of um, this process here um, in, in the ambulatories. But uh, what he does is he creates this fault line. And, um, An engaging work um, that aligns with the curve and natural curve of the architecture of this gallery. Yes.
2: and unstable sometimes throughout their body of work. I mean, we, we see examples where references to Chinese um, history, history, art, and culture, or aesthetic forms can be um, drawn out and understood, but then you can reach another part of the same
1: artist's body of work
2: where those references, they're not there, but they do tell us something contemporary Chinese social concerns. So just so that you don't think for yourself that really does a sort of connection to tradition, but also a way of um, visitors understanding contemporary social context as well. So um, this is this as well as a number of other works. And throughout the whole sort of scope of this exhibition, it's fascinating to see how Wai way kind of moves in and out of, of history and, and tradition. Um, and I also just the final point was that um, words like this, particularly this um, sit on earthquake body of work, and fire body of work, the snake ceiling, the names on the uh, the names that are being uh, read out loud, um, crowdsourced right, and read out loud, um, is that part of Ai Weiwei's work uh, that I think is quite effective for me is, is it's communicative as someone described, communicative and that it, it describes something to you, it explains something to you, but, and, and admittedly that it requires a bit of um, knowledge or reading, like right, some background knowledge or some support reading, but on the other level there is this, what some might call a transactive um, character, or that um, it doesn't, certain works, especially from, my favorite is the one where they're reading the names, um, but the that it doesn't rely upon you, the viewer, or the individual you know, um, identifying a particular subject. It can touch you in a more, for lack of a better word, in a more sort of universal way. There is an emotional effect that, you know, we are always loath to describe as characters, but there is there is an emotional effect that can come from hearing these names and seeing the sort of magnitude the magnitude of destruction um, that these works are referencing. Whether it was in China, or whether it was in the middle of the United States, there is that sort of transactive, emotive, um, uh, thing, feeling that comes out of something so monumental. So.
1: No, I mean, I think it's, it's there's so many different, there's so many different, um,
0: strategies that we see here um with that
1: way of a, a, beginning with Cuba, and you know, kind of bringing together cultural um, memories and within this kind of uh tradition of um, you know the dawn fragments and kind of overturning and transforming values into a much more kind of detached or almost disengaged um uh Relationship to objects like the um, with, with minimalist cubes um, and that you see in Rosewood Cube and Then here there is this push almost against a kind of it is very didactic in one sense, in the sense that you you know especially with the such monochrome uh, black and white photos. Um, understand and you know make me out of this. And some, I mean, I'm in New York Times, and uh, they, there have been reviews that see this as almost a derivative of, for example, George and Sarah. And that that only gets to one aspect. I mean, I understand what people see of it.
2: So um, it, it also elicits questions that sort of much more general questions that I think anybody, in, as we all have in different areas, um, from the throughout history of the 20th century, is how do you visualize disaster? How do you make tangible in um, an artistic form um, trauma? And um, this is a, this is a fascinating. The, the, the body of art that comes out of the Sichuan earthquake is um, um, a, a set of wonderful examples to think through that question uh, and the way that he has handled it. So I think uh, getting past the sort of glare of being a political dissident artist and, 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 and as we both try to do in both of the exhibitions is to bring people back to the artwork and back to the language that he's using to actually see how Clever is a sort of a light word, but, but you see my point that he's, he's actually uh, has a deft hand at, at navigating or negotiating visually and conceptually um, this trauma that affected a, a specific place.
0: Does have questions? I have a question. Yes. How does he feel about being recognized as the dissident artist? What is his sense of
2: self-awareness? I mean, if you ask this question, Ads to newspapers or creating artwork, his entire mode of being is to be the, the sort of much more than the Socratic fly. Yeah. It's just like the bee, the I mean, that's, something. With his document in the New York photos as well as the Beijing photos, I mean, he you could see that he's
1: an observer of life in society, and that's began from day one. He's since since the earliest um, before he could read, really, it comes to. Be more self-conscious and live as an artist. I think mean, that's that's one of the main purposes of you know his, his life. And so he's constantly not only just making work like this, but um, he's also he's constantly making documentaries um, of people on trial. He just actually gave me a new uh, documentary that I made last month, and um, it's it's I mean I haven't seen it yet, but it's it's um, on. Uh, I think an, a village head who was crushed by the authorities by a truck. And, um, and it's, it's a very, very um, depressing incident that happened quite recently. So um, we're going to have a marathon of films on um, February 14th that will uh, showcase, I think, two of his documentaries. One is Fairy Tale, um, which is the project that he did during the uh Chinese citizens. Um, to Germany, to castle Germany as part of um, the exhibition documenta, and um, I mean that's also another completely kind of sociological uh, project that um, brings up so many issues um, currently um, in terms of you know once how, some people who don't have how does one bring you know um, so many citizens who actually don't have passports or last names and you know to another gap between um, the self and the other. And then uh, there's another documentary that he's made um, that we haven't shown uh, another trial of, uh, of a dissident artist. So he's constantly you know, um, aware and keeping track. That's, that's part of his, his, his um, interest in the works. Yeah, I think it goes back to a point at the very beginning
2: that, you know, if you want to look at it from the art end, and sort of following that Duchampian legacy, of and even earlier, of, um, artists who engage with, who see art as inherently political—that has that it has a purpose, political in terms of um, um, being observers and commenting on, or asking and poking and provoking questions about what's going on around you. And you can look at it from the sort of non-artist perspective to say that you know he's. He is um, um, a social critic you know, that is, that's sometimes, he sees all of it as, as art in a way, and, but art for him is defined as, as something that is not, it's, it's not an inherent object or a discrete object all the time, it, it's a way of life, it's, it's any of these modes. So, I mean, I think um, seeing the films actually is very helpful in getting a sense of his sort of philosophy towards life and how he enacts life. Um, I just mention so, so Sorry, which is another
1: one that he made, which uh, we'll mm-hmm. be screening uh, about the such earthquake and um, his investigations.
2: Yeah, I'm fascinated with this piece because I don't know how long it took you to put it in. And then I'd be fascinated when you move it to like New York or Chicago, what it's going to look like. Because I
0: can't conceive that
2: every rod is going to be exactly in the same place if you did it, didn't. and I assume that's part of his art as well—that yeah. it continues to
0: change every time you do yes. it someplace else. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, this this work is some, not just this work, but even Kipa, for example. That piece is not exact. That, that those fragments aren't meant to be in the same exact. Place. I mean, it's a constantly um, adaptable work, um, depending on the person who's actually constructing it um, at the time. It doesn't actually have to be the same person. And um, this show, which part, uh, part of it was originally, you know, originated at the Mori Art Museum in Tokyo, so um, it was also installed there, and it was, had a very different um, ex- exterior or surface um, pattern here. With uh, straight, yes, this this work we had to actually uh, work with the Smithsonian SI in order to uh, really get the engineering, the structural engineers, to uh, make sure that the floors would be stable enough to um, sustain the work. And so this pattern, in fact, is uh, is influenced by our structural um, engineering standards. It's not. We actually had many different um, versions before we got to this piece. And even in the last week, um, this piece, I think it took a week to install. We had two um, studio assistants from way, uh Studio, as well as our own um, exhibit staff. And they came in you know, many, many different crates. Um, and I think, that, I think that's
2: what's ingenious about the fault line, actually. Yeah. Because that would mean that the fault line would be written. I mean, there's the engineering of it with the fault line then lends itself, I think, you know, the, I mean, I wasn't here to install, but the fault line is a very simple way, I think, of engineering um, um, a site specificity in each place. Yeah. Have you yeah. taken a picture of each place has been, see its evolution, just looking at the film? Film has it looks totally different. Yeah, that, that film is it's from other uh, studio. The, this is the first time it's been exhibited out, outside of the studio,
1: and the studio is on the ground floor, and so uh, the thickness is much higher. Um, and then the show will travel to uh, Indianapolis and then to Toronto, Miami, and then Brooklyn Art Museum, and uh, the spaces, the gallery spaces are much different, and so this will be defined. Since
2: How do you feel about it? Hey, <laughs> okay. thank you very much.